Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Ken Wilson and Michael Lerner. Ken Wilson is the Executive Director of the Christensen Fund. Ken Wilson, welcome to the New School. Thank you. You serve as the Executive Director and CEO of the Christensen Fund, which is a private foundation supporting the resilience of living diversity at landscape and community levels around the world in partnership with indigenous peoples and uh, and others. Um, In the foundation community uh, in which we both move, uh, we're both based in the Bay Area, um, uh, you have a reputation, um, deserved reputation, as one of the most interesting and creative uh, foundation leaders in the Bay Area, many people would say across the country, for people who share um, interests in biocultural diversity and in uh, creative analysis of what is happening in the world. So it's a particular pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start with the Christensen Fund. I, I gave a brief gloss on it, but perhaps you could um, say in a more alive way. Really, what are you about at the Christensen Fund? So Christensen, uh, in a sense, takes the the liberty that's provided by being a private foundation to um, really sort of think in a longer, wider framework about what what might be needed um, to deal in a more fundamental way with the crisis that the planet is going through right now. Of course, we, you know, we join many other foundations in trying to, you know, to slow um, and, you know, reduce the, um, the extinction crisis that we're going into, which is an extinction crisis uh, which is happening at a cultural level, a linguistic level, a worldview level. It's happening as rapidly, if not more rapidly, than it is in, in terms of biodiversity and ecosystem function. It's a, it's a crisis, a holistic crisis, if you like, across the board. And, We um, look at that crisis and we say, yes, we should, as a community, do everything we can to slow, blunt that crisis and so on. But we also look at it and say that we are not going to succeed. We are not succeeding and we're not going to succeed to to prevent that happening. We can make it less bad and we need to, but we're not going to prevent it happening. We are in an extinction crisis. And in an extinction crisis, we believe that some entities, in fact, as many as possible, should be taking the long-term view. How can we um, build our capacity as a planet to come out of that crisis um, with um, as much as what has been generated and learned, if you like, in the interaction between people and their cultures and, uh, and the natural world? Uh, such that we can re-establish um, uh, the diversity that we need going forward, or which makes the world beautiful going forward. Uh, and so that means for us um, as much emphasis on um, strengthening the resilience and the regenerative capacity and the preservation, quote-unquote, um, uh, of the seed stock for, for that new uh, for that, for that, you know, longer-term situation, 
um, and not just trying to um, prevent um, you know bad things uh, happening. So that's a that's a very that's the kind of privilege I think that we have as foundations to try to take a question which um, is a bigger and longer and more challenging one, and then to think about, well, if you wanted to do that, where do we do that in the world? How would we try to do that? So, well, first of all, before we go on, as you spoke, it just the image that came up to me was that in some ways this is sort of a Noah's Ark strategy. Yes. That the, 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 the storm is coming. We're in the storm. Right. As you said, not only is this... A, a time of extinctions, as we know, it's the sixth great spasm of extinctions in the history of the planet. You know, the last was during the age of dinosaurs, roughly. And as you so beautifully point out, this is not just about biodiversity, it's about cultural diversity as well. And in fact, cultural diversity is being threatened at at least the same rate, perhaps even a, a higher rate. Yeah. Um, and we both know that many of the places of the greatest biodiversity are also the places that are home to the greatest cultural diversity so that the very effort which many people overlook when they the large foundations have often overlooked when they go to preserve biodiversity hotspots they have overlooked the key role of indigenous people as the guardians and stewards of those places so the analysis seems to me very deep Yes, I mean we had that opportunity to make uh, to make a fresh analysis of that kind. Um, we had that. We are a foundation that has been around, you know, since the since the nineteen fifties. But um, we, at a moment in the family's history, um, when um, the two sisters who were leading the foundation uh, came to the point where they decided to, in a sense, uh, rebirth the foundation to address the situation for, of the current situation on the planet and the situation, you know, in the, in, the, in, in the family with generational change. They decided, you know, to, you know, to open, you know, bravely um, and freely the, this wider question. And the, and the fund, just like many, many other foundations, had long had work on biodiversity and it long had work on cultural diversity and artistic expression. And they'd been unconnected. And... In a certain way, it's symptomatic of the condition of the planet that even the entities that are trying to deal with the problems of homogenization, the problems of the you know, Cartesian separation of nature and culture, they still themselves often replicate those very same divisions, that very same inability to to even notice, let alone to deeply understand the fact that there's a very, very close correlation and interdependence between different kinds of diversity. Landscape diversity is related to biodiversity, is related to linguistic diversity, is related to cultural diversity, is related to agrobiodiversity. All of these things correlate. It's really, it's only, um, it's only maybe 15 years since the, f the first preliminary maps were produced, which actually showed what's the, you know, where is linguistic diversity on the planet, and where is biodiversity on the planet? And you have, uh, you know, more or less a ninety percent correlation. To absolutely knocked people's socks off. There'd never been any. There'd never been a moment when linguistics, um, when linguists and biodiversity specialists had sat had sat down and looked on the map. 
So if these diversities um, are indeed, you know, um, correlated, we wondered in this relaunch of the foundation, surely their solutions should be more connected. And uh, that was a very deep inspiration for us, this notion of biocultural diversity, this notion of integrating the, the two diversities. Set the second insight that immediately followed us, uh, followed that realization, is that a great deal of the important diversity on the planet is simultaneously both biological and cultural. So that the variety of a particular crop, yes, of course it has its own gene sequence and it has its own biophysical reality, but at the same time that um, crop will not survive without the cultural knowledge that reproduces it. And that cultural knowledge is a complex cultural knowledge. Yes, it's a, a knowledge of the head, but um, it's, an, you know, it's a set of ideas that could be you know, written down and put in a bottle and rediscovered by some future civilization. But it's also a knowledge of the hand and, and of, of the, the heart. And of the heart. It's a knowledge of all of those things. Yeah. And the knowledge of the heart and the knowledge of the hand is not so ready to be put in a bottle. The knowledge of the hand and the heart has to transition from human to human, typically across generations. It takes a very long period of time. Any of us who've ever tried to learn how to, how to you know, even how to hold a hoe of all the thousands of different types of hoes that there are in different indigenous societies, to hold the hoe that is adapted to the particular soil type and farming system in a hill farming area in Asia or Africa, that it, you, you, you know, it takes weeks just to learn how to l hold the hoe, let alone to learn how to effort effortlessly you know, weed acre upon acre, you know, skillfully um, moving the blade in a way that you know, gets down to the right level of the, the roots of the weeds and avoids all the useful plants that are mixed in among them. So it's a knowledge of the hand which takes years and years to learn and you can only really learn by doing and you can only learn that doing by being with someone who knows how to do it. This is a kind of knowledge which we think is, 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 is deeply important and that while we continue to value you know, all of the knowledge of the head that both science and indigenous peoples and other place-based peoples have about this diversity and its relationship to landscape, we also saw early on that knowledge of the head was not going to be enough. We needed to, to maintain the continuity of knowledge of the hand and knowledge of the heart. And that meant working on the scale at which that happens. And that scale is different. It's, just, it's, a, it's a both more intimate scale um, in space. It's down to the community and the family, the individual stewards of these resources. But it's also a time scale much longer. Most of us in the foundation community, you know, we have a two-year or five-year time frame. Five years is a great time frame for foundations. Usually we have long think we've solved the problem and moved to a new problem. But the processes that we're talking about take inevitably generations to resolve. You can't, you know, you, 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 you can't in a small number of years build that kind of knowledge, that kind of relationship. So that meant that we needed, we realized we needed to work on much finer spatial scales and much longer temporal scales if we were to achieve this change. It's a very different idea from, you know, we're, because of the, the swirl of modern life, 
our scaling up is this notion that we're going to scale up, you know, in a few months, we're going to scale up across a huge spatial scale, make a huge impact. We took a different approach. We said our scaling up wants to be on a decade and even century scale. Mm. Um, so beautiful. It's different. So beautiful. But, you know, just in my own life experience um, at this nonprofit center, Commonweal, where I work, um, which, where I've been working for the last 40 years, and I've, for 30 years, I've done retreats for people with cancer. And it is only now, after 30 years of over 175 week-long retreats, that I'm beginning to imagine having something to say to a larger audience of, of people with cancer. So you talk about thinking on, you know, in, in decade terms, uh, and, and even now, uh, my sense is that I want to learn as much from other people as I might possibly have to offer them. So, um, so I'm deeply resonant with what you've said. The other th thought that came to me is just so fascinating. You spoke just now of the work of the head, the heart, and the hands. And, um, and I'm curious about which tradition for you that comes out of, because literally last night uh, I was um, working on a little piece in which, and, and this has fascinated me for some time, it seems to me that in many of the great religious, spiritual, and philosophical traditions, that the, the, the difference between the work and wisdom of the head, the heart, and the hands is recognized. It's recognized in the Waldorf schools, where they literally talk about the work of the head, the heart, and the hands. In, in uh, yoga, in the, the, in the Bhagavad Gita, the three great yogas that compete in the Bhagavad Gita uh, are, uh, are the bhakti yoga of the heart, the yana yoga of wisdom, and the uh, karma yoga of uh, service in the hands. Uh, uh, again and again, I've been tracing it through different religious and philosophical traditions. Um, and again and again, and of course, it's built into who we are. We have heads, we have hearts, we have hands. These are three of the core ways we express ourselves in the world. And then there's a fourth yoga, which is Raja Yoga, which is the integration of these three. So it's just fascinating to me that you chose that language, that trope, to describe your work. And I wonder what lineage you took it from. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect it probably came from a number of places. The experience for me uh, of discovering that was a pra very practical experience. Right. It was the experience of you know somebody who had you know suffered a a great surfeit of high quality Western education. Headwork. Headwork. Right. Um, you know who you know I. You know, it distinguished himself in in ecology. Right. You know, at um, you know at, at Oxford, and showing up in a in an African village um, to do you know ecological work, uh, not showing up fresh from Oxford, having you know been born and raised in Africa. Uh, my parents very knowledgeable naturalists. I thought I knew field ecology. It wasn't that I just done head ecology in Oxford and never you know, never seen these environments, but realizing that I didn't understand anything. 
And not only that, I couldn't see. I, I had to be taught to see. Um, and it wasn't, I discovered quite quickly, it wasn't my head that was the problem. Well, perhaps my head was in the way a little bit, but it wasn't that um, I needed to teach my head to think differently. I needed to learn how to, f you know, put my hands on the soil and feel the soil. You know, I needed to learn to taste plants, to feel plants, to smell plants. Um, you know, we would be digging uh, soil pits to try to understand where the tree roots were. And, you know, every, everybody on my team, let alone even the passers-by, would just take one glance into the pit and tell you which tree's roots were which. And I was like, how do you know? And, you know, and then they had to teach me how to know, which was that, you, that they had different textures, they had different smells. Um, and then realizing over time that it wasn't just that I could, you know, you know, make my hands useful to my head too, um, that I was going to have to do something with, you know, my deeper sense of relationship to that environment and so on and so forth. The and work I, of the heart. The work of the heart. And I had been, you know, I was raised a, a Quaker mm. and had had, uh, as a teenager, you know, from my teens, a, a, a very... Um, engaging, you know, uh, spiritual life and set of experiences. But I had a very, only a very clumsy way of relating that to my, you know, lived daily experience, particularly the experience of my, of my body. You know, it's so interesting because in the Bhagavad Gita, just to come back to that, of these three great yogas of the head, the heart and the hands, what the Gita says is that the most trustworthy of those is, is uh, the yoga of the heart. It is the yoga of love. And, um, and that is such an interesting teaching for Westerners. You know? Yes. Um, and uh, because, yes, you know, we are in our heads a lot. And also in the West, in a different way, we're in our hands. Do, 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 right? Yeah. But, but, uh, but, I love the I love the Sufi tradition, um, in which um, you know, which absolutely is a discipline of the heart. You know, not of detaching ourselves from everything, but of recognizing that it is through relationships that we often come to the deepest understanding of what life actually is. They say the friend leads to the friend. The f small yeah. f friend leads to the, the friend. And, and Socrates said the same thing. It was through relationships, through love relationships, uh, that we ultimately come to understand, uh, you know, the, the universal power of love. Yep. It's a, a different way of understanding what actually the deeper drivers in our lives are. Mm -hmm. Both in terms of our motivation, but also how we, what the values are that actually help us to make mm -hmm. our, our deeper decisions and orient us. I think Augustine said, what we love tells us who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certainly I think that 
if we look at the work of the Christensen Fund, if we come back to something very palpable, if you like, in the world, the team of people who found themselves attracted to this mission uh, as staff or, or board members or, or, or grantees, fellow travelers, were, yes, all people who, who had a, a deep intellectual interest and a lot of practical knowledge about the, you know, the, the nature of this diversity and how to try to tackle it uh, through, you know, um, all kinds of, you know, different institutions and, um, you know, and smart things. But all of that team were, have been a team of people whose life experience has convinced them of the value and necessity of this kind of work mm. and uh, have given them resources, emotional resources, to deal with the magnitude and pain of this loss. If you look at this work, you're dealing with loss. Of course. You, you're dealing with mourning. Of course. Um, but you're dealing with it in a sense that there is hope. Yes. Um, and you're dealing with it in the sense that you, live, you work with the living experience that uh, you will find many other people similarly motivated. Mm -hmm. So you have community. You have community. And you... Yes, we're going to use all of these, you know, we're going to use all of our rational brains to strategize, but you, the living experience of doing this work is that we are going to work on something that, you know, is a stretch, if not hopeless, but that you're going to do it, where you do it successfully and meaningfully, it's because you gather and a community of people with the strength to do it. Now, of course, you know, we deploy millions of dollars. Um, what is the grant budget per year? Uh, currently, it's, it's 13.5 million this year. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it, it fluctuates. Mm -hmm. But it's a significant amount of it's money. It's a significant amount of money. Uh, particularly given that we are, have, you know, we've been doing this for a while and will do, um, you know, for a while too. And you're working in parts of the world where that money can go quite a ways. That's right, yeah. yes. We, we absolutely Which are. Which is a huge multiplier. We can talk about that too. Yeah. So yes, we have, we have money. Mm -hmm. But our ex the experience of nearly all of our grants and our grant-making strategies is that that money quickly becomes both nothing in relation to the size of the problem. Yeah. But also you see that the power, whatever is being achieved by the people we're supporting, is not being primarily driven by that money. It's being primarily driven by the, you know, the, the, the patience and persistence and innovation that, that it comes from heart knowledge and refusing Of the people you call the custodians and stewards in that Yes. Area. So we, we have a very, very strong... Um, Value. We give tremendous value to these traditional stewards and custodians, these people who bring together these different kinds of knowledge and, and hold together that relationship. We don't think those folks can do it alone. Right. We don't think they're the only people that matter. But if you look at all of the energy and backing and resource going into this question, they get very little of it. And yet they are the very people who most hold this together. And so 
We spend a lot of time thinking about how we can help them directly and indirectly with that vision and with their, with their perspective on what it's going to take to enable this to move across the, to move across the generations and to be, you know, manifested in those their landscapes and communities. And those people are the most extraordinary individuals. Yeah. And working with them is. transforming experience it's a transforming experience uh, yes they will take you through all levels of mourning and challenge but they will also lift you um, in the most extraordinary way and they'll also you know burn through your heart absolutely so <clears throat> your your place-based investments in a small number of of regions of exceptional cultural and biological diversity. Uh, the map of your program shows Northwest Mexico, Northern Australia, San Francisco Bay Area, Central Asia and Turkey, Melanesia, the US Southwest, and the African Rift Valley. So if we could, just because um, as we speak on June 27th, uh, 2014, um, Turkey and Central Asia are in uh, transformation, or that area is in transformation. Um, uh, as we speak, uh, Iraq is falling apart, dividing into three separate complex uh, regions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't have to go on about all the different things happening there. What is your perspective? Uh, from your work in Central Asia and Turkey on what is happening in the region of the world where you're working and how does it relate to those larger developments that are taking place there? So it was a dozen years ago that we you know, looked across the planet and said, where would you invest if you were investing with this long-term time frame? And you know, there's a lot less data uh, available then about both about past and um, the past distributions of cultural and biological diversity and their diffusion in the world. We know a lot more now. We know a lot more, for example, about, you know, when there has been severe, you know, climate transitions in past Earth history, you know, how have they impacted different regions? We now know from pollen cores in isolated lakes, all kinds of things we didn't know a dozen years ago. But a dozen years ago, we did that exercise. And we noticed something which I think has been borne out by all of this additional attention in recent years, which is that uh, there have been a number of regions of the world, many of them, in fact, the mountainous regions that form the boundaries of major bio, biogeographic regions, which have consistently been not only places of high cultural and biological diversity, but have also been generative of that diversity and have been resilient to past periods of major change. Resilient probably because they are very, you know, complex, structurally complex. Mountain regions, you know, it's not only altitude. Plants can move a few hundred meters up or down a slope with temperature change much more easily than they can move hundreds of kilometers along the flat. Um, but also you have different, this complex geology. You know, you have um, different soil types. Uh, you have different slopes facing the sun and not facing the sun. And in each valley you have also cultural resilience of that, that great 
diversity on a very short time scale. So we noticed there all, that we, we came to a feeling that a number of these mountain regions had been very, very important in the generation of diversity, in its resilience, and particularly in its transmission, or if you like, radiation of, of that diversity, back, if you like, down from those mountain areas out across the planet. And we saw this as we looked at many different things. We saw it when we looked at um, the diversity of, of crops and, and fruit trees and nuts and so on. And we saw that uh, Vavilov, the great discovery, discoverer of this process, had identified that there were you know, a number of regions, mostly ancient mountain agricultural civilizations, in which most of these crop species had actually been domesticated and discovered and then spread out around the world. And we saw it in the other areas too. And we tried to pick out some of those areas that we um, had been important for this in the past and that we thought were in regions where we had the basic conditions for a California-based foundation, you know, to make grants to local entities to do stuff. Um, and were places that we thought were being particularly neglected by the international community and therefore where, you know, a small to medium-sized foundation could probably have a greater, a greater impact. And one of these was Central Asia. Central Asia at that time was still essentially in collapse um, from the, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union. It was in economic, um, desperate economic situation. Uh, there still had not been um, an effective resurgence of how to organize those societies, let alone in relation to their environments. Um, but at the same time, that was a, a moment of great creativity. And again, you know, it's cre human creativity which is going to enable us to transition uh, through things. So, you know, it was almost a model, if you like, of what will happen, you know, more slowly in the rest of the world because the Soviet Union was particularly brittle because of the, its political structure. You're listening to a conversation with Ken Wilson and Michael Lerner. But nevertheless, there is the model. These were these Central Asian societies um, had. So let's, uh, let's talk about the specific ones for a moment. What are what are some of the specific? Like you speak of the the, the felt people. Who are the felt people? So the felt people are um, semi-nomadic mountain. Well, mountain people who basically go up into the mountains yeah. of Central Asia in the summer take advantage of these extraordinary mountain meadows above eight, ten thousand feet um, with their livestock, with their horses and yaks, um, sheep, uh, cows, and so on, um, in the summer, and then come down into the valleys in the, in the winter. Central Asia has bitter, bitterly cold winters. Um, but they come down into the desert in the, in, in, in the winter periods and keep their animals alive as best they can on on hay and other things that they've managed to gather during the, during the summer period. Why do they call themselves the felt people? They call themselves the felt people because their main raw material for their physical culture is wool. I see. It's wool. It's, it's like these the are, Sufis. These are, gra these are grass, grass and desert lands right. in which there's hardly any timber. Right. Um, and they, their struct the structural material they have are these microscopic hairs of sheep. I see. 
And to a certain extent, you know, you can make wonderful rope out of camel hair, Bactrian camel hair. and They live in noble felt dwellings. So, yes. So look at this. They're, what they have, what they have to build their houses is wool. Yeah. What they have to build, you know, their domestic architecture is wool. What they have to make their clothes is wool. Yeah. So they call themselves the felt people because felt, this discovery that you could compress, you, not only could you weave, mm -hmm. which they do, and not only could you, um, you know, twist and make strings and fibers, but you could compress wool into a structural material was one of their key discoveries. And it was a discovery that happened here. Indeed, this is the region where many of our livestock species were domesticated. Certainly the ones we consider to be Eurasian were domesticated largely in this region. And so they make the houses out of wool. And of course, this wonderful thing about wool, it's windproof, which matters a hell of a lot high altitude, and it's light. So you could literally roll up your houses with these, which are supported by these very thin willow twigs, which they get from the river valleys, and you can tie it up and put it on the back of a camel and literally move up, you know, 6,000 feet in altitude to, to get to those summer meadows as soon as the snow melts. And nowadays you can put it into the back of an old Russian jeep with similar good effect. So they call themselves the felt people. And, and so you speak of the, the living in biocultural landscapes in this same area. So you talk about, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce these, I'll let you do it, but the northern Tian Shan uh, uh, area, the Murga Plateau, um, and then you talk about innovative Deccans, peasants, and so on. Take take us into the landscape. Who are the who are the who are the human communities that you work with there? And then, how are they uh, being affected by what's going on uh, in that whole region of the world? So, for our engagement with the felt people is uh, primarily with Kyrgyz people okay. in these mountain ranges in. Um, uh, what is currently Kyrgyzstan, and in um, the Murgab Plateau, which is part of Tajikistan, but is uh, historically uh, ethnically Kyrgyz. So these are societies that the Soviet Union sought to modernize and transform. And frankly, the Soviet Union made a more seriously positive effort to do that than we've done in the United States in relation to Native Americans, so that these societies were highly educated they actually received the benefits of centralized control. They weren't just marginalized and then had their resources taken away and left with nothing. But they became part of a system which depended on massively subsidized energy, which came from you know, Russia's substantial oil reserves. They shifted from living in felt houses to living in wooden houses that looked very like Russian houses, surprise, surprise, and they were built with timber that was brought in very highly, heavily subsidized from Siberia. Um, and it was fabulous. They could heat those houses really well with subsidized energy. And their food supplies came from the Ukraine. Fantastic. Looks rather like the situation we have in many parts of the world. They were liberated from the ecological constraints of their region and from the economic constraints that those ecologies um, require of them. 
And they did not need the cultural knowledge that they had as to how to survive actually sustainably in that environment. And instead, you know, could live without the consequences of those negative feedbacks. Didn't really matter to them how much damage was being done to the Ukrainian soils, the over-application of agrochemicals and its impact on the Black Sea made no impact at all on the cookies. All they got was very, very cheap grain, grain so cheap that it was not economic to grow grain in the valleys of those hills. So they lost the knowledge they had of how to do that. Those subsidies could not last forever. Pushed to the limit by the war in Afghanistan and by the arms race and by its own, the Soviet Union's own inability to see what was happening within it uh, at the same time as the human desire for freedom overwhelmed them. All of that went away, literally, in a period of months. And suddenly they didn't have any of those things. How were they going to live in Kyrgyzstan? That was the challenge that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Wow. It was a microcosm of the challenge that we will have, similarly, here in the United States and other places. Mm -hmm. People had to find a way now of how, how, you know, you could no longer have an architecture that was not designed to your ecology. What were you going to do? And what happened across Central Asia is that people literally burned their houses to stay warm in the winters when there was no fuel coming in. They literally burned their orchards. They literally took out the remaining wood that there was until they found ways to get through that situation. And we were very fortunate to come in at the moment when they were reorganizing. In the resilience cycle, there's a moment after collapse. And to all the misery of that, there's a moment of creativity when you have a reorganization. Either the old ideas or values pre-collapse come back forward and you re-establish those, or something new comes out of it. And a lot there depends on non-linear processes. And if as a foundation you happen to be around at that time, you can support some of the kinds of innovation that can lead to reorganization. What they discovered was that um, you know, they were going to need a new mix of ways to survive. And part of that new mix was going to be reaching back to the knowledge of how to live in that environment, which predated, um, predated the Soviet Union. And in northern Kyrgyzstan, predated Russian colonialism that came before, came really from the, from, you know, from the 1870s to 1890s uh, period. So it was reaching back a long way. Where were they going to find that knowledge? And how was it going to re-establish itself, not just in a few individuals, but, in, but uh, across the society? Very amazing uh, decade of restora- a process of adaptation, restoration, rebirthing of knowledge. When did you come in? So we came in in 2002-2003. Which is when you were named the first external executive director. It was all part of this reorganization of the fund. Right. And Central Asia was one of the the regions where we thought we could do something, and we just plunged into it, knowing the little and as much as we knew. Well, we are strong believers in... Um, not in the uh, brilliant master plan that 
that, that Ken Wilson or anybody else can make here in, in California. We're strong believers in uh, finding at, at, almost, at, you know, at the, almost at the micro level what is the innovation, what is the, what are, who are the, the people um, with the ideas, what are the actual dynamics within those societies and within those landscapes. So the first thing we did was to hire a set of program officers who were people who um, vibrated within those societies. And Part of within, those societies? Yes. And who, whose, whose, life ex, whose life passion had been understanding these issues and who at the same time were very practical dreamers. You know, to use Man Ray's observation, you know, the world is, is full of, um, what is it, um, um, clever craftsmen. Uh -huh. But what we need are more practical dreamers. Uh -huh. So we wanted people who were practical dreamers. Uh -huh. We wanted people who wouldn't just, as clever craftsmen, have an intellectually you know, brilliant analysis of this society and then would try to um, manage it um, to make change. Instead, we wanted practical dreamers. We wanted people who could connect to this, these new, these vision, local visions about how things could be different, but could help turn those into practical realities. And so we, we mucked in with that, and we found, you know, as you can imagine, in Central Asia, just as in most of the other places we work, there were, you know, a modest number of local institutions a much smaller number of local institutions than there were local visionaries. But these visionaries had never had usually the opportunity to have any support, financial or practical or otherwise, to, uh, to form organizations. And so we helped them. We found people who knew them, could find them, would listen to them. And we decentralized our whole structure because if, we don't, if you don't decentralize it, how on earth is local voice going to have a, an impact? If, if the only way things get back is if Ken Wilson understands them, you know, what a huge constraint there will be on our ability to innovate. So we decentralized to those program officers and we gave them time, we gave them years, in fact, to come up with strategies and to find people. We didn't say, you've got to spend this money by this date. We started out, you know, spending, you know, only a couple of million a year in across all of these regions. All the regions. All the regions, you know. Um, uh, in Ethiopia, we didn't make a single grant the first year. We took the time to enable our program officers, you know, to find the right people and support them in the right way and to move at the pace at which um, that um, phase required. So many resonances for me here. Um, I was on the board of Global Green Grants uh, for a term, an organization I like a lot, and they, they also use local uh, advisors to make grant-making decisions, and they've decentralized that way. Um, uh, you and I, I, Bill Drayton is a good friend from Ashoka, and uh, again, there's a, a focus on finding you know, social entrepreneurs at that level of, um, of uh, diversity and a similar focus on resilience. Uh, David Bombright uh, uh, in London works on local voice and getting local voice back to decision makers. So as you speak, I'm just 
sort of cycling through my own experiences uh, with organizations that do some of these things. But you add a whole dimension to this, uh, which is this focus on biocultural uh, resilience and the choice of places. Um, but one thing I have noticed from um, the efforts to do this is that um, it is easy to become captives of the people you first select as program officers, you know, unless that selection is extraordinarily careful and fortuitous. Um, when one comes in uh, to a community with money where there hasn't been money before, one shifts the dynamic in, in many ways. Um, the, in other words, the concept is exquisitely beautiful. The um, operationalization of the concept over time, I would imagine, has its challenges. Yeah, beautiful observations. Yeah. The, I would take you back to one, I think, important conceptual idea. Right. If we're interested in diversity, right. diversity can only be created, and if you don't believe this, try to do it mathematically. Right. It can only be created out of two, you know, interaction of, among other things, two, two important notions. The first one is that it can only be created iteratively. You can't create it. I mean, you, it's, it, you can't even get a machine to create a list of random numbers. You have to have a structure to make it do that. You can only create diversity through iterative processes, through processes of, you know, of gradual feedback and change. And this, this is an important point for foundations to realize um, methodologically. The second and related point is that you can't create diversity top-down. You can only create diversity by supporting a multitude of diverse open-ended processes. And I think this is very, very important for foundations that care about diversity. If we, we must support the, if we, uh, uh, to, because of the way in which we emerged as an environmental movement, we have seen diversity uh, maintaining diversity as essentially an effort to preserve what we already have. Sustainability versus resilience. Yeah. And preservationism right. versus supporting the, the, the very evolutionary processes that right. we're talking about. So pres uh, uh, preservationism can, you know, can often be effectively dealt with top-down and in a non-iterative way. Mm -hmm. Your idea is to essentially try to you know, stop the processes which are eroding the diversity of X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, put a fence around a piece of land. Um, you know, once and for all, legally own it. And you know, I, I don't want to dismiss yeah, those the strategies. Amazing work that Doug Tompkins and his yeah. wife have done, and, and they're great works of yeah. preservation. So you've got great preservation. But in if we if if we're asking a different question. If we're saying, how do we support diversity on an ongoing basis, then we have to be supporting evolution, the evolutionary processes. And evolutionary processes um, require um, you know, uh, that they be large in number and that they be iterative. And this requires, it seems to me, a, different, a style of grant making which is uh, decentralized, not overly coordinated, 
full of internal contradiction right. um, and is iterative over time. It's not a fixed strategy with, with, a, with a single set of focused outcomes. I everything we've, resonate everything we've learned about yeah. you know, how to have those, you know, you, yeah. it's, it's, it's true that if you use those methods, you do achieve those, you're more likely to achieve those specific outcomes. I don't right. disagree with that. Right. But the problem is, we know mathematically, that isn't going to solve the diversity problem. Right. And that's why Christensen and a number of other foundations, perhaps with a less formally articulated academic argument, believe that we have to, if we want to, if we want to support diversity, we have to support these evolutionary processes, and that requires a much more uh, chaotic and dispersed process of supporting change rather than the master plan. And very complex to execute. Very complex and unpredictable. And unpredictable. Unmanageable and difficult to communicate. Uh, we, as, as others who support this work, do not um, find it easy to explain to ourselves, let alone to the world, what actually is happening. Because, in fact, we, uh, it's hard to know. And even when you do know, it turns out to be immensely more complex. We've chosen a model of change which is very difficult, and it's a, it's a challenge. And you also identified a bunch of the other challenges, which is that if, our, if, if, our, if the only lens we use on those societies is, if you like, the single program officer, with all their fabulous knowledge, but nevertheless, they're a single lens. Mm -hmm. How are we going to support that diverse set of processes? Because inevitably, a program officer is going to, you know, however much they try to be neutral and open-minded, are going to have their particular interests. They're, we work in very linguistically diverse places. Um, we work in southwest Ethiopia, with, you know, which abounds 60 different languages. So we have a program officer who can speak probably 10 or 12, but that isn't going to be enough, is it? Um, it's the same in any of our, our regions. So what, we what did we try to do in the face of that? We tried, um, one of our early ideas was that we wanted a multi-threaded relationship with our grantees and with the wider community. So our program officer was central, but we wanted the relationship with our partners to not only involve the program officer. We built a team of grants administrators here in... in uh, in San Francisco, who are, you know, world citizens and who also speak languages of the regions that we're talking about and travel to those regions. They don't just sit and deal with documents. They have a, also a human engagement with our grantee community. We tried to ensure that our management culture at executive and board level supported substantive engagements in the field you know, not just going for a few days to the capital city, but really spending a lot of time sitting out under the tree or in the mountains. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, but really, you know, listening and helping to broaden that set of relationships. We also hired other people locally to play subsidiary roles, again, to help with that outreach process, to help open us to the kind of diversity of learning and strategies and connection that we might need. And we started to move over time. And that's one other important thing. We also took a decision that our program officers, however well they were, were performing, were not going to stay forever. It's mm, critical. And so that there would be turnover. Now, we have a challenge that, you know, it takes, it takes you know, years yeah. for somebody 
to even the wonderful people we hire for them to fully understand um, you know, how to work the Christensen Fund or philanthropy to be helpful. So there's no point turning people over every three years. You'll never get to maturity. But we did build in the idea, the obligatory turnover approach. And, it, and of course, it has its painful aspects, but it has also its glorious aspects. But I think the other important innovation that we made strategically was that we have steadily moved from the notion that we were going to have an omnipotent program officer who was going to pick all of, the, all of our partners to trying to, over time, build the capacity of um, you know, locally indigenous controlled largely, but uh, not ex necessarily exclusively controlled institutions, which we would give increasing latitude to, recognizing their autonomy and creative role, uh, often as re-granting agencies. We have um, helped to build local community foundations and some. That's right. Some kind of locally responsive philanthropy. Or if they're not giving grants, at least they have their own independent relationships with these communities. Which Peggy Delaney at Synergos and others uh, pioneered in many respects. That's right. That's right. We are in, in, in almost all the things we're doing, we, uh, don't, we wouldn't claim to be pioneers. We're trying to get the right mix of these good ideas and to get them into societies that have tended to be outside of the uh, limit of engagement of these in, 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 in the past, these sort of most marginalized um, places. So all of these are ways in which um, we have um, tried to ensure that our administrative processes and mechanisms are reflective actually of the, kind of the diversity and of the innovation and creativity that we think are essential to actually support um, resilient change. So now you have 12 years of experience with this, roughly, starting in 2002. Yeah. In six regions of the world, seven? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's slightly hard, you know, but yes. Okay. A bunch of places. So I would imagine that in the glory and agony of trying to create a new model of philanthropy uh, sustaining biocultural diversity uh, in these extraordinary mountain areas of the world, that over time you would develop rules of thumb about uh, how, what you've learned from, in other words, there's a beautiful quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, I care nothing for simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for simplicity the other side of complexity. <laughs> and so rules of thumb are a nice way to think about um, simplicity on the other side of complexity. So you've entered into this extraordinarily challenging, difficult form of decentralized philanthropy. If you were to name a few rules of thumb that have emerged, uh, three to five rules of thumb, what would you say they were if you were trying to talk to others interested in this approach to philanthropy, what would you say the f three to five rules of thumb that they might need to know? Some of the ways, some of them are indeed ways of trying to create simplicity, the other side of complexity. I love that idea. We increasingly developed the notion of trajectory, that one way of understanding these complex processes of change 
for, for in, or rather our engagement, but the Christians have found part of this because it's obviously only a, a small part of, of what of what changes, is to think uh, to think in trajectory terms. So one starts with um, a stage where you identify, you know, your partners and your broad strategies, and you start to either find or often, frankly, support the creation of or building of brand new institutions in those societies. Um, uh, and that requires a whole, you know, a whole kind of mindset. Indeed, it involves, it requires a certain kind of program officer. Um, and it requires a certain kind of backup from Christensen as a whole and so on. But then you move from that phase into a new phase where now, you know, you have a bunch of um, institutions and ideas which are, which are beginning to get proven and are beginning to um, uh, have capacity. And then one moves, if you like, into a different stage in that trajectory, which is essentially trying to help those roll out uh, impact in that society, however they define it. And that requires a different mindset. It requires a different way of giving money, a different, um, you know, if you, if you like, you know, in, in a, you know, if you're in a hurdling race, you start off with your, you know, very short, fast steps, and then you move to a stride, and then you set your stride to the hurdle you know is coming. So in, in, it requires, a, a, you know, our, our, your grants are no longer going to be these short, experimental, trying to speed up grants. They're going to move to a kind of a stride, and you're going to be trying to uh, build a financial relationship with institutions so that they can start to think in a multi-year way in the way that you would, would have been very harmful for them when they were still at the creative formation stage. But, but now is necessary for them to have a different impact. So we move into that stage, and then we move further into the, the trajectory. We're moving into a phase where um, they want to now engage in societal change at a scale that is well beyond Christensen Fund's resources. We do not want them to... Um, to maintain, you know, a, 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 a fabulous relationship with the Christensen Fund, um, and never be able to be bigger than what we can fund them to be. Uh, we want them to uh, grow beyond us, both in terms of the financial and other resources we can provide, but also in terms of the intellectual ideas and their accountability and so on. We don't want to get into that situation where they become overly accountable to us and underly accountable to other stakeholders. This is a highly non-resilient and certainly for, for a hundred reasons we can all imagine. So the, the trajectory notion as a way of organizing our thinking about where the societies we're trying to work with are, where our grantee and partner institutions are and where we are as an institution has been a very important um, way of, of simplifying our understanding of, of, uh, of the complexity of change that we're dealing with. I think another important uh, development has been around how we see these stewards, these guardians, the, you know, this person who is who is you know manages the sacred forest at the head of the valley that's so important for every aspect from the hydrology to the spiritual identity of a community how do we work with that person in the early days 
we were very, very determined that we should feel a direct relationship to that person. Mm -hmm. Because we were trying to, you know, frame a different way of working. And because we wanted to make sure that what we were doing helped that person and that institution to work effectively. You're listening to a conversation with Ken Wilson and Michael Lerner. Over time, as we have matured as an institution, um, we have, um, I think, necessarily rethought what our relationship is to that steward. Um, where what we are now in our strategic planning process is saying that what our aim is is to try to secure a, uh, an environment, uh, a social, political, economic, institutional environment, which is, if you like, pro-steward which is an environment in which that person can thrive um, without, you know, um, can, can thrive most effectively. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to have a situation where stewards can do great things every time they get a grant from the Christensen Fund. We're trying to have an environment in which they win. Mm. Uh, we've realized that um, it's a two-sided coin. We need an environment in which people can, can succeed but we also need to have, for them to have institutions that can continue to struggle to frame that environment and can help them succeed in that environment. It's not that the it's not going to involve stewards, organisations, and and uh, and all kinds of things. But we've been moving to that notion, uh, seeing ourselves less as being ourselves the direct ally of these stewards, but trying to support a whole institutional ecosystem and set of values in these societies which provides alliances with, with stewards and provides a valuing of stewards and enables stewards to succeed with or without us. And again, we see this as uh, part of um, the ne you know, necessary for the diversity that we value, that we are not behind or connected to everything. We've got to become less connected to it if it's going to thrive. We also see this as the as being able to work at, at spatial and temporal scale beyond us in valleys we haven't reached. Things should be better. But also over time, uh, we do not want to make the processes of, of stewardship and guardianship dependent on Christensen grant making. We're not going to be grant making there forever. Um, we have got to uh, constantly uh, ensure that each time we make a grant, we make people more autonomous, not more dependent on funding. Which is a very challenging thing to do. It's a very challenging thing because the more dependent they are on your funding, the better they make you look to your board Right. in the short term. But we have a board who can see beyond that. Right. They don't want to have grantees that spend all their time working out how to do exactly what Christensen Fund thinks is in fashion this year, produce beautiful reports, be incredibly grateful, and do a huge amount with the money we give them. That's a trap. We need people. We need our grantees to primarily be worried about other people. That in you know, worried about arguing with the other guys in the village who are against this. So Those are the people we want them to be discussing with, not the Christensen Fund. Give us an example of a recent grant, or not recent, but give give me an example, please, of a a grant that succeeded, that, that is a, a perfect example, or a, a good example, of something that does precisely that? What's, what's an example? 
Well, we've had a huge number of, um, rem you know, remarkably successful programs, right. to be frank. And right. um, it's not something I take credit for. I understand. Uh, but let me let's let's go back since we were talking about about Kyrgyzstan. Right. Um, one of the things we discovered very quickly in Kyrgyzstan was that possibly the single biggest resource that this country was and this society was using to reframe itself were its sacred sites, and in particular, the guardians of these sacred sites. During the Soviet period, you know, of course, religion was. Um, you know, uh, was not seen in a very positive way. And there was a great deal of concern um, among, particularly particularly in the Stalin period, around the autonomy of both Islam, but also of, you know, Sufic understandings of the world, which led to, you know, very severe crackdowns on these places. And huge numbers of these guardians, you know, were sent to gulags um, and were very repressed. And so... Um, by the end of the Soviet period, there were very few of these guardians uh, visible. There were more who were invisible, but even they were few in number. But one of the most extraordinary things that happened in the 1990s was that all of these, you know, spiritual, crazy spiritual people re-emerged and returned to live at these sites. And, be and simultaneously with the resurgence of um, pilgrimage, forms of pilgrimage and worship at these sites. These were largely Sufi centers? It's, comp it's difficult um, to be, to simply categorize. All right. um, but many of them were Sufi uh, centers or were run by guardians who, even if they wouldn't necessarily self-identify, mm. were, were clearly engaged in many things that, that we from the outside would say, all well, these are Sufi ideas. So, um, you know, there was this resurgence um, in these sites, and these sites became major places at which the relationship between, between people and nature was being debated. Mm. And of course, quickly, they became the focus of, of conflict with Islamic fundamentalists who were very concerned about uh, how... Um, God appeared to be written into the landscape, not just into the book. And these, of course, were major places where women, uh, in particular, had religious and collective community experience. So um, our program officer at that time uh, was a, a, you know, a, a major scholar of Islam and of Sufism and so on, uh, Dr. Rafiq Shafji. And he observed this process very vibrantly and he went out and, and found uh, uh, Kyrgyz um, individuals who um, could see what, how to engage with that process. And they f and found in particular a remarkable uh, woman, uh, Dr. Golnara Baeva, who was then a professor at the American University in Bishkek, but had been researching this phenomena and um, going through you know, an extraordinary experience with that, with that phenomena. And she had a vision and um, ended up uh, creating um, uh, an organization which not only deployed in a very open way a scholastic understanding of what this was about, but was uh, deeply open to the visions of these guardians. And to cut a very you know, long story short, 
um, uh, through this open-ended process, they were able to um, network these shrine keepers, help to articulate in a whole series of books and films and uh, TV series and radio and all manner of consultative processes, help to get out the vision, the diverse vision, crucially diverse vision, of these shrine keepers because they're not centrally organized. And you can imagine there was a huge amount of, of creative diversity between how they framed what they were doing in relation to Islam and in relation to you know, every other idea out there. They were able to curate a process um, which, um, you know, yes, we were able to, you know, fund printing costs and filming costs, but quite quickly that process overwhelmed the funding that we gave and, and had a life of its own and connected, importantly connected with this latent trend in Kyrgyz society. It wasn't that this was a new idea for the Kyrgyz, this was something that they were trending towards but it could suddenly be hugely magnified. And so, you know, what makes me excited about processes like that is that you now have, you know, you know, most of the population of Kyrgyzstan goes to these shrines. Um, you now have, you know, shrines and people who are going to shrines and shrine keepers who are engaged deeply in open-ended debate about the relationship between, you know, between you know, people and the world they live in um, without ever having heard of Christensen Fund or ever, there's no, there's no sort of palpable, there's no palpable dependence on Christensen Fund and yet there is a debate which has helped that society enormously with its transformation um, and which has its own trajectory. And I think it's that, that kind of um, experience that uh, we continually, you know, seek. How can we um, facilitate the flowering of a local idea in its own way, in its own diverse way, in ways that at the end of it, they're less dependent than they are at the beginning of it? That is so beautiful. It's really a... Uh, I've been... Because I'm... Because I find the Sufi tradition one of the most beautiful expressions of the perennial philosophy um, and with its acceptance that... Um, its, its basic premise that it's the great... Uh, the, one of the greatest Sufi... Uh, leaders, Ibn Arabi, uh, once said, I love this, he said, God never appears to two people in the same way, and he never appears to one person in the same way twice. Hmm. And that vision of diversity, of experience of the numinous, uh, is so integrated into the Sufi tradition. And I just, I love this example uh, for many reasons. The the truth is, if we had days to do this, that we could go through each of the areas in which you're doing grant making. We just touched on one. But I'd like to move us toward um, another uh, part of your experience and work that I don't know much about called the Mwande Trust. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Um, supporting indigenous innovation in Maziva, Zimbabwe. Um, tell us about... Uh, the Mwande Trust and your work there. 
So this is something completely unconnected to Christensen Fund. This is what I do in my, when in my other are, life. Yes. Right. In my other life. Yeah. Um, uh, and in, in essence, really, it's the, um, it's the consequence of the fact that, you know, I uh, went um, at independence in 1980 um, to uh, this area of, of Zimbabwe to be a school teacher. And um, I was a school teacher, but I made human connections, which uh, I didn't seem to shake off. And, um, you know, later did um, research there, actually did my doctoral research there, was involved back in the 80s in, a, you know, a kind of a suite of local kind of community development action participatory programs. And... Um, because of you know sort of my experiences you know with with um, um, I suppose with kind of Frarian ideas um, of participatory knowledge generation and this was at the very beginning of the idea that there was something called indigenous knowledge mm. um, Brokenshaw had just edited this first volume on indigenous ecological knowledge which he that did year, what, what year are we in uh, we're now he, he must have edited that. I think that's 1980. That's the beginning of indigenous That's the first kind of, um, I mean, you know, indigenous knowledge had been around forever. Yeah, um, and obviously people had recognized it. But as a term, that was, I think, the first time that, uh, that, a, that a, an academic book had ever been published on it. And, and I, I, when I saw him, uh, you know, some years later, I was like, oh, my God, thank you for doing that. He was like, I only did it because nobody else would edit it. And it was left on my... Left, left for me to edit, so it's not even something I necessarily think I work on. But it was, it was a new idea, so I, I was very captivated by that idea with all the freedom of youth. And so I generated a, a research model, a participatory research model, um, in which you know, me members of the community um, you know, uh, shaped you know, learn, learned all kinds of practical research skills and shaped the agenda. And this, you know, led to all kinds of exciting things in the short term. Of course, being young, I had no con concept of what this would do in the longer term. In the longer term, it meant that there were members of that community who, just because I finished my PhD and started working on Mozambique and later went into foundations, that, they, that, that didn't make any difference to them. They were... Uh, you know, they were operating in this new way um, and continued to collect a huge amount of, you know, data as to what was going on in their society and tried to solve the, the problems in their own society using the research skills that they had generated. Um, and um, uh, this, over time, just got more and more interesting. And yes, I had interesting jobs too and was working in different parts of the world, but remained uh, ever captivated and um, in 2009 um, with the formation of the government of national unity and this sort of new chapter that we have had since um, in Zimbabwe um, the community wrote to me and saying we really want you back um, and there's all kinds of important and exciting things to do um, uh, would you come back so um, I found myself uh, rather shamefully opening up 
envelopes of data that they'd sent. Sometimes I had not opened it. I had envelopes that were 10 years old that I'd never opened, which turned out to be hundreds and hundreds of pages of incredibly detailed, high-fidelity assessments of everything from food to nutrition to ecology in this community. Using, a very, using the very same sample base that we had started off in the 80s. And so suddenly I realized that, wow, we had 30 years of, of, of data, data collected, not extracted from a community, but data collected by a community that wanted to understand itself and solve its problems. And um, wow, what a responsibility that was. At the same time, what the data showed and what my own initial, my first visit back again, which had, I, I'd been a, a several times in the 2000s, but, but not been able to really see what was happening. I went back with some sabbatical from Christensen. and I went back for a few months in, in 2010, and I saw this extraordinary situation that through the economic crisis in Zimbabwe and general collapse of the country, remember they had inflation at a billion percent, etc., etc., through all of that collapse had come the most remarkable innovation um, and change. This community had taken many of the ideas that we were recording in the 1980s and supporting innovators around, like the old man, Mr. Piri, who was a, a kind of indigenous uh, water harvesting permaculturalist who we had join our our team, he was like, how can I join a research team? I never finished primary school. And we're like, Mr. Piri, you are the most amazing, uh, innovative scientist you could ever imagine. So ideas that, that they had been talking about in the 80s, which had not taken off, were now taking off in the sense that, you know, hundreds of people were now water harvesting. The, all the research we'd done in the 80s were that these small, um, small grains, these indigenous uh, drought-resistant grains, were simply more suitable for the uh, for the ecology of the area. But maize was what modernity was about, and it was what the aid agencies wanted people to grow, it was what the government wanted people to grow, and so they continued to grow maize until basically the country collapsed and they had to feed themselves. And then they went back to these indigenous um, varieties, many of the varieties actually that we had helped to resuscitate in the earlier period of research, and the, we had done this you know, training as to how to select your own seeds, even though they were buying hybrids. But people remembered how to do that, you know, 10, 15 years later when there weren't any more hybrids. You couldn't buy hybrid seed even if you, even if you wanted to. Um, and so there was this incredible renewal. And furthermore, they had um, uh, it, it, what, they, what they say, they say we reinvaded. We re they'd reinvaded the land across the river, their ancestral land that had been owned by an, an American mining company for, for the past uh, 40 years or so by Union Carbide, um, took over that land and um, uh, were reestablishing farms on that land. So all kinds of amazing things were, were happening in this community, very exciting things in this community, um, which um, captivated my attention and... Um, and gave a whole new motivation to, to doing uh, research, including to telling the stories. It was a, you know, when people go through crisis, they have a completely different perception of history. Um, my obsession with interviewing all the elders and recording all of this history, you know, was politely valued by that society in the 1980s when they were focused on progress. 
they just obtained independence, they're now going to have progress. But now in the, two, in the 2010s, they're, they're deeply fascinated with this history because they're trying to answer the question, which way forward our society? And they want to know this history. And so I'm under unparalleled pressure um, to uh, work with these um, local teams to, to come up with a, with a history in which they are participants and a history that they can use going forward. Um, that's an extraordinary story. Is that, is that communities, in some sense, your spiritual home? Well, isn't it interesting? It, it is my spiritual home, isn't it? Um, how these things happen, it's not quite clear. Mm -hmm. um, in the 90s, I assumed that, I mean, I was, in, in, fact, in effect, becoming a Mozambican. Mm -hmm. I assumed I was going to live in Mozambique. Um, I spent 11 years working in Mozambique. And I, I, what were you doing there? Initially, I was doing, um, you know, very practical research, uh, you know, on trying to help people survive the the, the war, um, um, help the peace process to go forward, rebuilding the country. Um, then I, I spent seven years with the Ford Foundation. Right. Um, then now with obviously a considerable budget to support mm -hmm. that process. But I was at a personal level, I was, you know, becoming a Mozambican. Um, uh, I lived in Portuguese for a long time. I never thought I was going to live anywhere else. Um, it was really an, an extraordinary accident that I suddenly was with the Ford Foundation now in, the, in senior management in New York. I did that job just because it was such a surprising idea um, and, you know, the idea of doing something new. So, you know, I might have been expected to go back to Zimbabwe, to, to Mozambique rather than to Zimbabwe and to be involved in many exciting things there. But what, what the difference was that in Zimbabwe I'd been involved intimately in a, in, a in a very specific landscape and with a very specific community of people individuals now who, you know, I've known most of my life. Uh, in Mozambique, I was working on a larger canvas. I didn't have that same connection to one particular community. There isn't a, the power a place, place where I... The power of place. The power of place. I know there's individual trees, let alone the species of I trees. I, I can't to, let go of it. I was listening to uh, uh, Michael Krasny yesterday interview Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry whose correspondence of 40 years on the power of place has just been published. Mm. And, um, and it is so exquisitely true. Um, you know, since I've lived in Bolinas for 40 years and, and uh, this little town of 2,000 people on the ocean north of San Francisco, and Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry were talking about what it meant to have neighbors, not in the sense of living in a suburb where you probably move on in three to five years, but where you've lived for decades and are likely to live for the rest of your life. And the relationship that you have with neighbors in a community like that, and the relationship you have with place, you know. Now, of course, that's very different from the relationship that the communities that you work with have with uh, their communities in place. But it is, a, it is some form of modern equivalent um, to live in a single place for 40 years of your life and have the same neighbors and, you know, yeah. and engage with that community. As you spoke about it, as you said in, in, uh, in 
in Mozambique you were working on a wider scale in Zimbabwe, you, you knew the trees, you knew the people, and it came back to that matter of the work of the head, the hands, and the heart. And, and so it seems to me what makes a community or a spiritual home is a relationship of the heart. Yes. You know? Um, That's right. And that, that, again, is where the deepest power in many respects is. That's right. Yeah. It's the trajectory of life is so unpredictable but so easy to make sense of sometime in a certain way. Well, when you look back at it, you can understand the trajectory, but you can't see it going you, forward. You cannot. Yeah. And um, it's hard for me to convey how much meaning... I feel in that con in that connection. Um, how often do you go back? So I'm going nowadays. I'm going back more or less every year. Mm -hmm. um, for how long? You know, for a month or two, whatever I can scramble together mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. sabbatical and vacation and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, but here's the here's the new reality. There's something called WhatsApp, which enables effectively free texting. Yes. So I get around 100, 200 WhatsApp messages a day. From, from Zimbabwe. When people first get on WhatsApp, you know, being an indigenous community, mm -hmm. people initially, you know, they treat it as they treat yeah. verbal communication. Yeah. So you get a message, good morning. <laughs> and you write back, good morning. <laughs> How are you? Right. Fine. How are you? Uh, People have, they realize that that's impossible now because everyone's on WhatsApp. They'd never, they'd never get off the machine. But no, I'm, get, I'm engaged in very, very you know, detailed discussion about everything from the personal to all of this mm -hmm. work and these issues. And so I feel very deeply you know, connected. Wonderful. Let's uh, talk a little... Go ahead. You know, and um, you know, I'm now also um, realizing I'm going to have another you know, another geographic and community connection, and that's in North Borneo, uh -huh. which is, again, not something that I had How exactly that? planned How for. How is that going to happen? Why is that happening? Well, that's happening because um, I, um, I'm in love. Um, well, so, um, that's the real news of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see myself in the longer term, you know, um, you know, living there, spending a lot of time there, and putting in roots into that into that community Isn't that too. Wonderful. And um, what's North Borneo like? So it's uh, part, of course, of this you know extraordinary Sunderland rainforest mm -hmm. region, um, which you know, like every other corner of the world, um, is now fully engaged. You know, I, when I think back to a dozen years ago, we thought that by working in northern Papua New Guinea or in, um, you know, southwest Ethiopia or northern Kenya or whatever, we would somehow be beyond the edge of the major global economic and political machinery. Not a bit of it. Every part of the planet now is fully integrated. Um, you know, maybe not North Korea, but, but um, you know, uh, North Borneo is not the Borneo that we grew up with. It's now fully integrated into the into the into the global system, um, with everything that we 
know and love and know and hate, all happening at the same time there. But in extraordinary, extraordinary society, it's a very diverse part of Borneo, partly because of its location really um, um, connected essentially to the Philippines um, around the Sulu Sea, which um, was not the boundary, but in fact the center of, of a, you know, a set of ethnic communities, uh, Fisher and um, the British would say pirate communities. Um, who were trading in that area, who didn't take kindly to the British trade monopoly <laughs> established by the North Borneo Chartered Company. But another aspect of the North Borneo Chartered Company was that it brought people from all over South and Southeast Asia to, to North Borneo. So you have a little bit like Mozambique, a very, very uh, diverse elite, if you like, in the coastal towns, and then um, a wide variety, a wide diversity of indigenous groups in the interior. Um, with a notion that there's something a little special about this society. And I think one of the things that, uh, apart from the person with whom I'm in love, which <laughs> attracts me to, to Sabah, to North Borneo, is this sense in that society that it is a special place, and it's a place that values its diversity, and it's a and place a that wants to have it. Do you have a relationship, or are you guys actually able to live in the same place? We have a we have somewhere between a commuting and living together relationship. Um, it's quite a challenge, and uh, but we, we do remarkably well. Um, but it's a society that, f that wants to pursue a sp uh, its own trajectory on the world. Mm. It, wants to, it recognizes its special ecological and cultural heritage, and it wants to work differently towards that. And that excites me a lot. And uh, it also excites me a lot that some of the ways in which um, I have experienced working in the territories of another former chartered company, the British South Africa Chartered Company, and its history. Maybe there could be a way of supporting a similar process of um, uh, enabling a, a community to make visible its history uh, there and use its history there to contribute to how to you know, carve its own, its own way forward, its own development path. Um, connected perhaps to this Forever Saba, they have a, an initiative which has the very widespread buy-in in that society, including from government, for an alternative development path which um, transforms the economy away from resource depleting to, res you know, to resource regenerating in the energy, agricultural, forestry, tourism, and other, and other sectors. It's a very exciting idea, I think. You, uh, before we began recording our conversation, you mentioned that you'd just been in Bhutan for, was it a meeting of the International Society for Ethnobiology? So we've talked about your spiritual home in Zimbabwe and then this new engagement with North Borneo, um, which is likely to prove equally deep. Um, uh, I wonder... Is the International Society for Ethnobiology the place where the key intellectual work that surrounds your understanding of the work of, of the world and your work through the Christensen Fund is being done? Or are there, a, as is likely, a variety of centers where the, the the key thought work is being done. I guess to reframe, yeah. if you were to make a list of the academic or 
or non-academic intellectual resources that inform your worldview and your work, what would that list look like? That's quite a long list. Um, And it's a list that that derives both from, you know, scholars of of biocultural diversity, but also, of course, you know, revolves from... um, you know, the insights, um, you know, from from the humanities and from poetry, but also from, of course, a very wide diversity of indigenous communities. But the International Society of Ethnobiology is a very important one. And, um, in fact, it was, in a sense, their founding charter, the Declaration of Belang, that was put together in a meeting convened by the late Dowell Posey, who was, you know, also at Oxford at the same time I was there. But, of course... He was focusing on the Amazon. I was focusing on Africa. In those days, we we didn't know that there might be a connection. Um, and in that declaration, they talked about the inextricable link between cultural diversity and biodiversity. And that, I think, was um, found... I think that was 1986. And again, this was part of this huge work that was done in the 1980s that took, if you like, systems, the consequences of systems theory and of more integrate and of kind of the a notion of more intellectual integration and in the 80s connected it to a different kind of politics and created the internet in the intellectual foundations really of what of the explosion in valuing of diversity that really happened only in the 90s let me just so let me riff off that for a moment because in my own work in uh, environmental health um, where we've been looking for the last you know, 15, 20 years at the um, interaction between human health and the environment and through the collaborative on health and the environment for the last 12 years or so with a partnership of 4,000, 5,000 people around the world. What has emerged for us, which is so interesting, is that in order to understand the epidemic health conditions of our time, the disease uh, epidemics of our time, that um, there is no single smoking gun for these diseases and that what we've come to is what we call the ecological paradigm of health. Yeah. And the ecological paradigm of health draws on uh, e- the ecological sciences for its core paradigm. That what happens as an ecosystem breaks down is very much what happens to human health as our internal ecosystems or collective uh, uh, ecosystems break down. And so that brings us right into systems theory and complexity theory and all of the things that you've been talking about. And, And then when I look for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for me, that... Uh, as to how to build resilience, which again is a key term for us in human health, what I'm able to say is the bad news is that the pandemics of our time have infinitely complex causal chains. The good news is that any reduction in stress and improvement in nurturance that is introduced into the system will build resilience somewhere in the system. Mm. And that, therefore, when you look at a community um, and you're, you know, obviously some of these points are more leveraged than others. But 
almost anything that you can reach that will make a beneficial change is going to have, you know, broad consequences in some sense. So what's interesting to me is that from these, that, that the lessons that you described that emerged from the 80s for you uh, in ethnobotany are the same lessons that have emerged from me yes. in a completely different trajectory in integrative medicine and holistic health and then environment and health and so forth. I think that the, the, the reason for these remarkable parallels um, in a certain way goes right back to, you know, to the history of Western civilization and Western thought. That in essence, you know, um, the huge liberation that we experience as a culture of taking the spiritual out of knowledge and of separating all dimensions of knowledge um, into and the formation of different disciplines, each with discrete and exclusive methodologies. This, you know, liberated a huge amount of energy and forces in our society and led to the generation of a way of a way of knowing and being on the planet, um, whose ramifications, you know, all of course went off in their different directions, but they came from that, in a certain way, that single pebble that hit the pond. So it's hardly surprising now that in each of these different realms, we have in essence the similar, the, a, a, a similar problem, if you like, or similar, a similar dynamic. And it's also hardly surprising that nearly all of the, the you know, the, you know, in a sense, the next phase of our civilization will be precisely undoing that same problem, reintegrating different bodies of knowledge and being able to uh, more comfortably know how you can combine different kinds of knowledge. We've, you know, we've, we've extracted the medieval church, if you like, from, you know, our understanding of physics. But how can we accept... Um, how, in a new understanding of physics, can we accept certain you know, certain notions of knowing and unknowing and so on that are quote-unquote spiritual. That's the challenge our society's engaging, engaging in, and that's what's going to liberate us, because nearly all of our, you know, your problems are always the same as your successes. All of the, our successes of our society and our problems of society are precisely around those two things. You know, we know everything about water purification, and we know everything about all these other things, but we can't integrate them together. We, we just we don't have a mechanism. So as we'll find that the mechanism of integrating different, the different branches of knowledge and different ways of knowing will, I think, in different ways find its application into almost every one of our endeavors. It doesn't surprise me the degree to which there's parallel. Mm. Uh, it only excites me. And uh, I think, you know, that one of the, um, you know, the great tasks of our time is to find how we link this discovery process in these different domains in a way that's, you know, we've, we, I think we've made the link symbolically. Mm. We know it now. What we haven't done is we haven't made it in careful detail um, so that we move from the understanding or the slogan into usable tools so that we can actually start to address these different, these different problems. As we come to a close, uh, I could go on for a very long time talking with you, but um, 
is there any piece that we haven't explored that um, seems to you particularly germane to the conversation that we've had? Any final observations that you might wish to make? We spoke earlier about um, what we can learn um, as societies from um, the experiences of others who've gone who've gone through periods of you know collapse around the you know the fossil fuel subsidy and um, over economic integration and so on. We we talked about how Central Asians. Um, had to reimagine their society, remix ancient and contemporary knowledge, um, and particularly how they had to um, innovate practically from the ground up. Um, and I think that um, that's a very important idea that uh, we need to connect globally. But what we, what we didn't do was to talk, and you raised it in a certain way a, a moment ago um, um, uh, in relation to Bhutan, um, how important is it in the world that there are a number of places who are trying to pursue a different development path? I mentioned this in Sabah as well with Forever Sabah, which is really an idea which has really captivated me because, and, and, and we have a similar situation in, in Vanuatu. We work in the South Pacific in Vanuatu. It's a, a very diverse little set of island um, chains, uh, you know, sort of 200 languages and um, it's pursuing, it's, try, it's trying to pursue its own Melanesian development path. It's um, developed, you know, its Department of um, Statistics uh, collects data on, you know, pigs and tusks and, you know, and family relationships as an alternative to measuring GNP because if you use GNP as your target in those societies, you... Uh, you you, 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 you don't go a way that improves people's well-being. Um, so we've, we've been quite captivated by that, and I'm very captivated by it, and I was very captivated in Bhutan, and I must say I went to Bhutan, I think, not, um, you know, with, a, not with quite the right, right frame. I, I imagine that Bhutan primarily was achieving its difference essentially through isolation and just through having a unique history. And of course, it is somewhat isolated. It does have a somewhat unique history. But I actually, in my experience of Bhutan, was that actually it was much more relevant to the rest of the world than I had perhaps thought. That, of course, it's highly integrated with, with India and it's experiencing all of the same major forces that are spreading across Asia, transformative forces that are spreading across Asia at the moment, uh, at, at community level, let alone in the megacities. Um, but yet it is demonstrating that it is possible for societies to make different decisions about what they're going to value, and that these have very palpable results in the quality of people's daily living experience. I was very, I and I think I should say, you know, most of the several hundred people who are at this uh, at this meeting were very, very struck by the fact that Bhutan da is is in fact offering a path that many places could take. You know, of course, differently. That's the whole point, right? But it is possible. It is possible for you know, probably not for big countries, but for regions of countries, places like North Sabah, which is part of the Malaysian Federation, places like Vanuatu and many, many other places can now and actually are developing the political will to do an alternative development path. And it's very interesting for me to see how 
when they start talking about that different economic path, it turns out to have the, many of the same decentralized, network-based, um, much more innovation. It's not the single big power grid. It's all the diverse ways of connecting, you know, uh, generating power, needing less power, generating it locally, using it much more efficiently. Um, it's the very same kind of innovations that we're talking about culturally, to go back to your connectivity. And it's thinking about well-being in a completely different way, rather than maximization of certain kinds of economic measures. It's thinking about well-being. And I think, um, and many initiatives are happening with indigenous and other communities in, in, in Latin America too on this. And I think that part for me of the next really exciting wave of discovery is going to be the realization that we can and should put a lot more of our energy, uh, life energy and even, you know, bits of our foundation capital, if we're talking about philanthropy, into these uh, local efforts to create a transformed economy, society, environmental relationship, which is open-ended, decentralized, creative, adaptive, I think this is going to be the way forward because changing the kind of mega, the mega trajectory is really, really hard. I think we're going to have to go through more crises before we can change that, sadly. Investing in these buds of new growth, much more holistic thinking, possible because they're in marginal places that don't matter enough to you know, the major global forces, small enough, have maintained enough social and cultural capital you look at the places I've mentioned, all of them are places that have maintained that cultural capital. That's why they can take a collective cultural decision about overall well-being. In societies where you have massive inequality and no human relationship between the super wealthy and the poor, they're not going to take the uh, yet these collective transformative decisions. It's too difficult. So I think that for me, and you know, one of the things that really animates me uh, in terms of what I would like to be engaged in the next two decades, are those efforts to achieve integrated transformation efforts from the bottom up on scales that have the, the, the cultural energy and coherence to, to achieve. Ken Wilson, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Always wonderful to talk with you. You've been listening to a conversation with Ken Wilson and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.